Join me, Dr. Cathy Weston, for my podcast series, Get a Grip, brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. In each podcast, I help unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? How can we make sure our children engage safely with the digital world? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main researchers in this area and asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. Courtney Norbury is a Professor of Developmental Disorders of Language and Communication at Psychology and Language Sciences, University College London. She is the Director of Literacy, Language and Communication, the Lilac Lab, and a Fellow of the Royal College of Speech and Language Therapists. She obtained her PhD in Experimental Psychology at the University of Oxford, working with Professor Dorothy Bishop on the overlapping language profiles that characterise autism and developmental language disorder. Professor Norbury's current research focuses on language disorders and how language interacts with other aspects of social and cognitive development, including mental health. She leads SCALES, a population study of language development and disorder from school entry, and she is also a founding member of the Reason Awareness for Developmental Language Disorder campaign. Good morning, Courtney. Thank you so much for joining us this morning to talk about your area of expertise around language disorders. So um, if we could just jump right in. I know from a recent editorial that you and your colleagues have published um, that developmental language disorder or or DLD seems to be chronically understudied, uh, which means perhaps that we know less about this disorder compared to others. So can you please begin by telling us what DLD exactly is? Sure. And thanks for having me on. It's a really good opportunity to spread the word about DLD. So basically, DLD is diagnosed when our language skills, which are about the sounds, the words, the sentences and the stories we use to communicate with one another, do not develop as expected. So this means that people with DLD might not understand what we're trying to say to them and what they say might be much simpler and lacking details. So we might not understand the message they're trying to communicate with us. So this can make it very difficult to have a conversation and and it might lead to some confusion about what we're trying to convey. So we need to learn a lot more about exactly what causes these problems with language learning. But what we do know is that there's a very complicated mix of genetic risk factors and things that are happening in a child's environment that give rise to this problem. And it seems that what is happening is that there are very subtle differences in the way that the brain is developing that make it difficult for the child to learn from the usual language input that they would receive. So it just takes them a lot longer to learn the words and sentences that they need to be competent communicators. Excellent. No, that that's really, really helpful to to know. And hopefully off the back of your editorial, people will start to study it more or start to understand it more. And then hopefully that leads to, I suppose people with DLD, I, as you say, are struggling to talk about things or understand things normally. So it must be hard to communicate that disorder to somebody as well if they're not quite sure. Exactly. And I, I think it's an issue in terms of raising awareness, because of course, if you think about other conditions like 
maybe autism or ADHD, where people don't always have that communication barrier, you can really advocate for your needs. Whereas the the thing that helps us to advocate is exactly the thing that those people are having difficulties with. So it's been much more of a struggle to kind of raise awareness in the general population about what this condition is and how devastating it can be for people who are experiencing those difficulties. Uh, yeah, I can imagine. And I think you've done some really lovely work, which we'll get into, especially around the skills project in terms of raising awareness in nice, accessible ways for the public in terms of print media articles and videos and things. So we'll talk about those a little bit more as we go through. But actually, speaking of an article that you wrote in The Guardian, you talked about and unpacked some of the most common myths or misconceptions around DLD, which I'm sure there are many. But can you talk us through some of those myths and, and why they're why myths. Yes. Yeah, so uh, one of the, the main things that I always say is this issue about cause. So mm-hmm. anytime I mention kids who have difficulties with language, there is always somebody who says, oh, it's just lazy parents. Or if kids didn't watch so much TV or got off their phones, there wouldn't be a problem. That is absolutely not the case. So it is true that parent talk is hugely important for children's language development. And if you have a child with DLD, it's very likely that some of the intervention approaches are going to be focused on parent talk. But that's not because we think parents cause children to have language difficulties. It's much more complex than that. We know for sure that it's a biologically based condition that affects the way children learn. That is a a consensus. We know that that is the case. But that creates some challenges, right? Learning is a two-way street. Kids usually will do a lot of things to get language out of their parents. Mm-hmm. And in DLD, that's not happening. You know, So young children will point, they might bring things to parents, they might imitate what their parents are, are saying and doing. And the, the children with DLD might not be doing that. So the opportunities to get language out of their parents might be reduced. It's also the case because of this biological link that sometimes, but not always, parents themselves might have some challenges with language and communication. Um, And so they might not be engaged in in things that help support language. And also once, once children start having difficulties with language, parents will very naturally adapt what they're doing to try and encourage words. So one way you might do that is start asking lots of questions. Mm -hmm. And in fact, we know that 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 is kind of counterproductive. So what a lot of speech and language therapists will be doing is trying to think about what parents are doing and how they can optimize the Mm. input that they're giving those children to help them. So I think the number one myth that I want to squash forever is that parents cause DLD and there's a simple fix that has to do with tech. You know, it's not like that at all. And, And parents have a really key role to play in in facilitating their child's language development. Brilliant. Yeah, no, I have to say my background isn't in speech and language or language disorders, but I do work with parents in my area. And yeah, I feel like parenting gets blamed (laughs) for a lot or 
They get blamed for everything. For don't everything, you? yes. <laughs> parents do a remarkable job. So yeah, and that's the absolutely. main message. Yeah, no, and I love that. I love that kind of that you're flipping on its head and actually saying, like, no, you are a key person in your child's development and in the, the speech and language therapy that will come after. Um, absolutely. Empowering. So, yeah, I, I did think it was interesting that parenting was in, was in there as being up on the top of the list of being blamed for DLD. But I know you mentioned a few things there that children, when they're developing, might not initiate the same level of conversation, for example, so they might not bring things or they might not point or gesture. So can we talk about maybe some of the, what kind of flags parents can look for when their child's developing language and maybe it's not quite going as as well or as quick as they think? Yeah, so, I mean, the number one thing is children just don't start talking when Mm. you would expect them to start talking. So most of the time we're expecting by a child's first birthday that they've started saying words and then you can see this spurt, you know, once they start, you can never shut them up again, usually, right? And very quickly, kids will start putting words together and they will be engaged in other forms of communication. So using gestures and and listening and, and following what people are saying to them too Mm -hmm. you know so if mom says go get your boots we're going outside you know most kids around that age can do that they can follow these simple instructions and the young kids with DLD just might not be doing that at all so they're very slow to learn their first words you might say something to them and not get a reaction or they don't follow that simple instruction they might not be doing those extra communicative things So everything might just seem a a bit slower. We also know because of the way the brain's developing that also other things might be raising some alarm bells. So they might not have the motor coordination or the motor skills that other kids do. And they might not be as socially engaged. Now, these are early signs and and they're common across a lot of developmental conditions. So Mm -hmm. if parents are seeing those red flags and they're thinking something's not right, it's definitely worth getting it checked for sure but that's the main one and and as kids get older you know it might just be that they're saying less Mm -hmm. they might not be following instructions they might be getting frustrated because they can't get people to understand what they're trying to say and so i i think the general picture for children with dld is they say less Mm -hmm. and they might not be understanding what you're saying to them which might manifest as kind of frustration or not following instructions. So those are the kinds of things to look out for, I think. Brilliant. Thank you. And I know that developmental milestones are a bit of a, (laughs) they can range, but I know kind of first words are really expected between 12 and 18 months. So is that when parents should really be mindful of these things or can they kind of look for signs as well when they're younger? I mean, I think the thing to remember is is exactly what you say, that at that age, at at around 12 to 18 months, there is huge variation in children's development. Absolutely. And and just because somebody's a bit slow to start talking does not mean they will go on to have DLD. We know that loads of children who are a bit slow at that age, at about a year, are absolutely fine. But I think after about 18 months, children have fewer than sort of 50 words if they're not putting any words together if that frustration is there then I think you know at that point parents should really get it checked out so I don't want people to start panicking because their children are not (laughs) saying a lot of words in a year but certainly by 18 months two years 
a lot of parents will say, we just we just had this feeling something wasn't right. Yeah. And I think anytime parents are worried, mm-hmm. definitely worth getting things checked out. Absolutely. Yeah, no, definitely. I don't I don't think you're gonna start a mass panic. <laughs> well, um, you know, I, I do know having having had a, a child myself, those parents can get into a lot of competition about when yeah. children are doing things. Yeah. And so I think it's just useful to know that certainly early on there's a lot of variation and a lot of potential for things to change quite rapidly. But I think parents have a pretty good radar when things just Mm. aren't right and that they definitely need to follow that up. Absolutely. And when you say follow that up, you know, if a parent does spot any signs that you've mentioned, what would the recommended course of action be? Yeah, so um, it depends on, you know, what parents, their kind of tolerance for finding things out first and then going to a GP. But I would say, you know, for young kids, you could go to a GP, like I said, this kind of developmental delay can be a signal for all kinds of things. So Mm -hmm. maybe talk to your GP. There are a a couple of charitable organizations that are really helpful. So there's one called Aphasic that has a parent hotline. So you can call and and speak to maybe another parent who's been in the same position uh, and maybe get some advice about things you can do to support language and where you can go to get extra help. And Speech and Language UK is another organization that really supports families who are having concerns about their child's language development. You can refer yourself directly to your local speech and language therapy team as well. So they would be the professionals that would be able to do a really in-depth assessment of, of your child's communication and give you lots of advice about things that you can do to support language. That's brilliant. I think that's, that's a really, I wouldn't have known that to, I could refer myself to a speech and language therapist. So that's, that's really helpful. And I think yeah. the chatting to somebody else who's gone through it, I think is also a nice one just to support. Cause I think inherently parents always blame themselves anyway, before anyone does. Yeah. So um, I think, yeah, having been able to speak to someone about facts. I think that's them, right. And I think, uh, you know, definitely refer yourself to speech and language therapy mm. but like most things in the NHS they're long waiting this now so I think if if you can connect with another organization just to have that kind of support while you're waiting to get a full assessment can be a really useful thing to do as well. Absolutely thank you and what would you say would be the kind of three key messages that you would like to say to any parent who has a child with DLD? Yeah it's hard to to <laughs> Never them down to just three. Um, one thing I would say, uh, again, is it's not your fault. It's not your fault, but you can make a big difference mm-hmm. to your child's communication. So hang in there. And the other thing is, you know, you're not alone. Mm-hmm. Our research suggests that DLD is really common condition. And there's been a lot of work in the last few years to try and build a community of families who can support each other. And Aphasic has some really nice programs about that, about bringing families together. So I think that is one thing to really bear in mind. It's not you, it's not just you, it's not just your child. And then I think there's some practical things that I would want parents to know. You know, again, it's it's about the difficulties that children are having, learning from the usual way that we talk. So there's some really simple things that we can do to kind of help that. So one thing is we just need to slow down. Most Mm. of us, myself included, talk really quickly. And for kids with DLD, they just miss a lot of what we're saying. So really slowing down, 
what we're saying, making the things that we want to learn stand out. So that might be keeping messages very simple to begin with, using extra visual information like gestures or for very young children, having the object that we're talking about in front of us so they know what we're talking about and giving them plenty of time Mm. and reinforcing what they say. So lots of repetition so that they're hearing language over and over and over again. These things can really help and children will improve. Okay. So the language they have it to is not the language they're going to have throughout their lives. Uh, Children with DLD do learn. It just Mm -hmm. takes them a lot longer. Lovely. No, those are, those are great messages. Thank you so much. And I found it really interesting, actually. I think it was in one of the papers that you published recently, you mentioned a statistic from another study that said about two-thirds of children with DLD report having poor social outcomes, but there's one-third of children that report low or no social difficulties. So I was wondering if we could talk about what the strongest predictor, I think the strongest predictor was pro-social behaviour in that one-third of people. And I wondered if we could kind of unpack that a little bit and talk about pro-social behaviour and why that might be a protective factor. Yeah. So, I mean, language is the principal means by which we engage with other people, right? Mm. So this is a big area of vulnerability for young people with DLD. And I, I think a, a parent gave me a recent example, which I just thought was brilliant. So she has a teenage daughter who has DLD and her daughter goes to a mainstream school and the school is very inclusive. You know, they're working very hard to make sure that kids who are having, who are neurodivergent can get on in the mm-hmm. classroom. And th- this girl does have a, a social group. But she's finding it really stressful because they're teenage girls, right? And they're yep. talking really quickly. And one of the big issues was what they were talking about. They were talking about the TV show Friends. Okay. And of course, this young woman had never seen Friends. So her mom says, so we watch it. Mm-hmm. And of course, she can't understand any of it. You know, the, the talk in the show is very quick. They're talking about things that she doesn't have experience of. There's lots of innuendo and double meanings and... It's just well over her head. So Mm. when she's in these groups at school, she can't keep up with the conversation. And it's really difficult to know how you adapt for that. Because, you know, you can't really say to the other teenage girls, don't talk about that or more slowly. You know, it's just very hard to to make that work. Now, this girl is pro-social. She wants to be engaged with other people. And that's really good because we know that kids learn from their peers Mm -hmm. even kids with DLD in fact there's some really interesting research saying that language skills of the peers in your classroom is a real boost to your own language skills and peers are also really good models of kind of the rules of engagement Mm -hmm. so it's really important to to make sure that kids with DLD are able to engage with their peers but you know, it's hard. And so mm-hmm. what sometimes happens is kids say, right, I don't want to do that because I'm exposing my difficulties. I get grief from people. It's too hard. And so they kind of withdraw. Mm-hmm. And I think then you get into this spiral where they've got a, a lot of anxiety about being in social situations. So they don't put themselves in social situations that affects their learning, which then makes it harder for them to engage. So those kinds of kids who who have decided not to be pro-social, who have decided 
sometimes, sometimes maybe they don't make such a conscious decision, but they're not as engaged socially that can have knock-on impacts both on their development but also on their well-being. Yeah, okay, that makes complete sense. And as you say, I I can imagine it must be really hard as a parent of a child who's maybe not super pro-social or not kind of has decided to kind of recess a little bit to try and encourage or model that behavior is there any advice or any things that maybe parents could try to encourage a wee bit more pro-social behavior in their children yeah so this is a tricky one we have to Mm. be careful about this you know in in other areas people have said actually we don't necessarily want to give this message that you have to behave in a certain way or you have to be social if you don't want to some people find that quite stressful Mm -hmm. I think we need to really think about what the young person wants and needs and then I think also it's good to think sometimes not just about how we change the young person with DLD but can we do something with those peers that might be facilitative of communication and Again, I, like I said, it's hard. You can't, you can't say talk like this or talk yeah. about this. But this is why I think raising awareness is so important. So one thing that would be really helpful if, is if parents could go into a nursery and say, my child has DLD mm-hmm. and all the staff have some understanding of what that means and can create an environment where they are modeling ways to maximize communication. Mm-hmm. You know, that's our ultimate goal. That would be great. And the same at school, you know, I've always found in my experience that even teenagers can be really adaptive in how they go about their communication. So uh, we used to do this, I'll give you an example. We used to do this respite holiday through a basic with teenagers and young adults. And I remember uh, taking the kids to like a games thing and our group wanted to play pool. Mm. And of course, the kids that I was working with had no real understanding of the rules of pool or the fact that you know you have to hit the white ball to hit another ball you know they would just go for the ball that was closest to the pocket (laughs) knock it in and these teenage boys were getting really annoyed with them and eventually i said look here's the deal this is how they're going to play this is why they're playing this way and they were like yeah okay then that's cool and so they adapted the way they played the game they all played together and it was absolutely fine Mm -hmm. and I think you know often in schools peers can be a real asset but we don't give them enough support or help in knowing how they can support somebody with DLD so one of the goals of raising awareness is to go in and say and be open about the fact that not feel stigmatized or stressed about it but just say hey I have DLD. These are the things I find tricky. These are the things that really help me. And then everybody in that community can get on board and and say, right, we can do this. Mm -hmm. And they get on a lot better, I think. Yeah, definitely. And I think I know from previous guests we've had on the podcast where we've talked about whether it is appropriate or whether the person with DLD in this case would be able to say to the teacher so the teacher could then communicate it to the rest of the class but obviously you're kind of dealing with not wanting to embarrass the child or not wanting to but like you say hopefully with that raising awareness the stigma is removed and you can just say you know this is this is who I am and I need you to do this and more often than not people will adapt and and change. I think that's absolutely right. And I think one way to approach that is just through this idea that we're all different. We all have things that we're good at. We all have things that we struggle with. 
we all need a hand from time to time. And so that I think that is a way in. And yeah, thinking more about how we can really support young people to have that two-way street. You know, I think I think sometimes it goes too far the other way. And there's this idea that we can just change the environment and everything will be fine. But like I said, sometimes there's things that are really hard to change and language allows us to do really important things. And so we we want to kind of have a two-way street. So obviously we need to make sure that the environment can be adapted in a way that will maximize communication and well-being. But we also want to give young people skills that are going to be helpful to them because language is so fundamental to everything we do, you know, school, work, socializing, even entertainment. So, you know, we do need to give them some skills as well. So it's just trying to get the right balance, I think. Absolutely. And on that note, is there, especially speaking about environment, and if we think about the classroom, because I suppose I can imagine that can be quite daunting sometimes for children with DLD, especially if the teacher talks really fast or if there's lots of like group work and everyone in the group's talking quickly and the child's trying to keep up. So is there anything that teachers could maybe do to create a, a kind of that environment that you were talking about that would, would help or be a good facilitative environment for a child with DLD? Yeah, I mean, we've got a long way to go here. Yeah. Well, it would be really, really great if there was more information for teachers and in their initial training and more support for them. When I talk to teachers and they tell me how lessons run, sometimes I think, oh boy, that's going to be really hard. Mm. Having said that, there is a lot of really good practice out there. So the, the kind of principles are the same, right? I think it's it's realizing, one, that language is everywhere in the curriculum. So when you say language, most people will start to think about English and yeah. reading. And yeah, that's a really obvious area, but it's everywhere. It's in maths, it's in science, it's in history, geography, everything involves language. So I think with that awareness then, it's really teachers thinking, okay, what are going to be the things that are particularly challenging if you've got the language skills of somebody who's much younger? So in our research, we were demonstrating that there's about a two to three year language gap between the kids who have DLD and their peers. Mm -hmm. So if you're a, a teacher of year six, you're going to have a couple of kids in your class who probably have the language skills of, of a child who's in, say, year three. Mm. So if you if you kind of come into it thinking that, okay, so what would a younger child really struggle to understand? And then making sure you flag those things. Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing. Lots of repetition, talking more slowly, using visual support, making sure you have the child's attention when you're going to tell them something that they need to, to know, using visuals, reinforcing that vocabulary in other contexts and again working with peers you know so when you talk to kids with DLD they say one thing they really hate is being called on in class it's very mm. stressful but if you could get them working with a supportive peer and the teacher can come around and say I uh, that's right I want you to say that mm -hmm. so the child knows they've got it right and they're going to be successful at this task then I think that will help facilitate some of that work. And again, you know, in schools, we like to ask kids lots of questions, but actually what, what we should think about is how we put language into their heads. Mm -hmm. So just saying, modeling over and over again, that's, those are kind of the key things I think that teachers can do. Brilliant. Those are great examples. 
And actually, speaking of school, I know in the Guardian article that we were talking about before, when you were talking about myths and misconceptions, I read one of the other myths was that early intervention needs to happen with DLD because by the time a child gets to school, it's too late and intervention won't work. So can you talk to us about why that's that's not the case and that is a myth? Yeah, so the first thing I would say is early intervention is really important. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> people early intervention definitely early intervention is important but the issue is that everybody thinks if we do the early intervention we're done we don't need to do anything else and that is definitely not true so what many studies all over the world have shown us is that if you just do that early intervention but you don't do anything else that the impact of that intervention will fade out over time Okay, so that's one big issue. You know, you, the effects don't maintain. And I, I kind of explain it by thinking about it like a diet intervention or an exercise intervention. Okay, so I, I was once described as an athletic teddy bear. So <laughs> my genetic makeup means that I've actually got to work at it to, to keep a kind of healthy weight and physique. And, and I can do that. So if I do a 12-week diet and running intervention I will lose weight I will be a bit healthier I might be able to, to run a bit further mm. but I haven't fundamentally changed anything about the way my body processes food yeah so the minute I stop doing that I revert to my athletic teddy bear potential okay I think it's the same with language so like I said what's the problem is how you learn from typical input mm -hmm. what an intervention does is structure the input in a way that makes it easier to learn but it's not fundamentally changing the learning mechanism so once you get rid of that support then we have a situation where well you've still got to learn stuff from the environment and it's still hard mm -hmm. so that's why I think it's, it's a mistake to think that a short-term early intervention is going to solve the problem. Mm -hmm. It's going to be very helpful, but it's not going to solve the problem. And the other thing that I think is more encouraging news is that when you look at intervention trials for kids of different ages, mm -hmm. you can get a number of how successful they've been at improving skills for the kids receiving the intervention. Mm -hmm. And that degree of improvement is the same whether you do it early or whether you do it later. Mm -hmm. So kids can learn and kids continue to learn even when they're adolescents. And actually there's lots of changes in the brain around adolescents that yeah. suggest that might be a really sweet spot time to make some big changes. So I think, you know, the kind of the more depressing message is you have to keep going just like maintaining a healthy weight it's mm -hmm. it's a lifelong commitment but the more positive news is that later intervention can have a really positive effect and the size of that effect seems to be the same as as when you do it early on as well excellent and yeah i feel like that, that was a, a really good a really good message i'm probably also going to steal that and refer to myself as an athletic teddy bear <laughs> 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 I, I'm good with that. I'm good with that. <laughs> Speaking of interventions, actually, I, I heard an interview with yourself and the Association for Child and Adolescent Mental Health, um, and I really liked 
how you talked about kind of moving away from focusing on that specific diagnostic criteria, especially interventions. And I was really surprised to learn that actually one of the most common interventions for DLD is talking therapy, which I thought was interesting, if not a bit maybe counterintuitive. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, in terms of maybe suggesting more of a tailored approach, I think, to a child's needs, if that's correct. And why is that so important, especially around DLD? So that particular interview was thinking about mental health interventions. Oh, okay. so, so speech and language therapy interventions are going to aim to do a few things. So one is to give kids additional language skills. So they'll, they'll be looking at sort of what level of language is a child at, what sorts of new vocabulary or grammar will they need to be able to be successful at school or or for adults at work or for in social context. So there's some skill development. There might also be strategy development. So they might be um, helping kids to recognize when they haven't understood something and say, I didn't understand that, so that they can get additional help. And then they'll be work with the environment. So what can people in the environment do to alter the context or their communication to get the most out of the language skills a child does have. So that those are kind of the three things that a speech and language therapist will do. In that podcast, we were thinking about the fact that children who have language disorders are at increased risk mm. of having poor mental health outcomes for a lot of the reasons we've been talking about, right? So they become more anxious about going to school. They're not having a good time at school. They're not doing well academically. They might have problems with peers. For some children, this will lead to kind of a, a really difficult situation in terms of their well-being and their mental health. And this becomes a problem because mental health interventions tend to be talking therapies. So you yeah. have to talk about things like, how do you feel? Tell me about a situation where you were feeling anxious that requires a child to give you a narrative. Mm -hmm. What could you do differently in this situation? So now you've got to use language to imagine a future hypothetical situation. Imagine who's going to be in that situation. What are they doing? How are they feeling? How are you responding? I mean, it's a really complicated language task. Absolutely. And so one of the real issues is to think about, you know, how do children who have language disorders and have issues with mental health access support? Because the research we've been doing is saying they have difficulties recognizing their own emotional states. Mm -hmm. They have difficulties recognizing other people's emotional states. They have difficulties using verbal strategies to regulate their emotional states. Mm -hmm. They have difficulties using language to imagine these hypothetical situations and to talk about them. And that can create all kinds of difficulty. And we know from work that other people have done that families say kids can't access this mental health support. The clinical psychologists have never heard of DLD. They don't mm -hmm. have strategies for adapting what they do. And we don't have any trials that say, if you do these adaptations, it makes it easier for young people with DLD. So huge amount of work to do mm. in that space. Absolutely. Yeah. That, yeah. I can imagine how difficult it must be. Like you say, there's, if there's no clinical trials to refer to or no randomized control trials to refer to, then how do we know what's working best? So yeah. 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 And I think for clinical psychologists, it's uh just really challenging for them too because they don't they don't have any 
well, they don't necessarily have experience or resources that they can draw on that can help them adapt what they're doing because they're they're just not aware of what the condition is and what the limitations are. So yeah, a lot to do. You're going to be busy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Speaking of some of the work you have actually done, I, the, I particularly think about the scales project that you've been working on. And I know from that longitudinal work, and I'll let you explain what it is in a wee second, but you found the prevalence rate for DLDs around 7.5%, which actually is, is quite a substantial amount of children. So would you be able to tell us a little bit about the scales project and then off the back of that, then tell us maybe about the the prevalence rate and what some science teachers can look for in children in their classroom. Yeah, so this has been a 10-year longitudinal study, one of the highlights of my career. And what we did was we screened about 7,000 children who started a reception class in Surrey a long time ago now. And then we took a cohort, a smaller cohort. We started off with about 600 of them. And we oversampled in that cohort for kids who we thought were going to have difficulties. So the screen was just teacher rating of how kids communicate in the classroom. And we had quite a diverse group of kids. So we had some kids who had uh, DLD and then some children who had language disorders that were part of other developmental conditions like autism or Down syndrome. And then we had kids who didn't have any difficulties at all. And our questions have been sort of, you know, if you start school with these language difficulties, what other things are going on and how does that change over time and how does it affect your success in the classroom? And then as they got older, we were really interested in these questions about mental health. Of course, when we went to see them in year eight, the pandemic happened. And yeah. so our questions have been really confounded with global pandemic, which none of us sent a spade a bit. <laughs> yeah. like those are the joys of doing a longitudinal study. Anyway, what, what they showed us, first of all, is this really high prevalence rate. And, you know, we were looking at, at kids who were in the bottom of the distribution of language abilities, and we were trying to link that with functional impact. So for those children who are really struggling with language, only about 11% of them met their early curriculum targets. So even in that first year of school, those language difficulties are affecting their abilities in the classroom. And you can see how that then sets up this kind of quite challenging experience of being in school. You know, you're, yeah. you're struggling from, from the word go. So that prevalence rate was, uh, it is common it is common and it does have impacts early on. Mm -hmm. The other thing that we found is that it's persistent. So mm -hmm. we've now followed those children into year eight. Yeah. And what you see is that one thing, I, I, it's just endlessly interesting to me, but you know, you, you see all of the kids are making progress. So mm -hmm. the amount of language they have in year three is much bigger than the amount that they had in year one. Mm -hmm. When they get to year six, they've made a big jump up again but it's parallel rates. So the kids who are having language difficulties make the same amount of yeah. progress. Mm -hmm. They just start at a lower level and they continue to be at that lower level. So that narrowing the gap seems to be very challenging. Mm. So I look at that and I say, universal education is a brilliant thing. It's probably the best intervention that we've got. All kids are making progress, even those kids who have a lot of of language and learning challenges. Mm -hmm. 
the big challenge for all of us is if we want to make that gap smaller, like I said, it's about a two to three year gap, we have to do something different. Mm -hmm. And I think the kind of million pound question is what what is it that we have to do? What can we do that will be, you know, sustainable, cost effective, meaningful to young people, Mm -hmm. and will just allow them to achieve, you know, personally, socially, academically, ultimately economically, Mm-hmm. And that's that's a difficult nut to crack, but that was that was one of those things. And of course, the other things that come from that is the impact that language disorder has on attainment. So those children all the way through are less likely to meet their uh, expected targets on mm. all our national curriculum assessments. They are more likely to have problems with literacy development. And you can see that ultimately that's going to create difficulties for them when it comes to employment and, and independent living and things like that. Yeah, yeah. But what, I, I realise there's still work to do, but what a, a like, positive message to see that, like you say, that they're still progressing. There's obviously a, still that, that gap, but they're progressing at a parallel rate to their peers that don't have DLD, which is a really good message I know there's so much to do but a really good message yeah it really is and I always say that you know I think we we've become very fixated on this narrowing the gap and I I do think you know I always say to teachers you know some of these children have really complex needs and and yet they are making progress so I don't want us to lose sight of that I think it's a really really important thing to say and I think one of the reasons that you see this kind of parallel rate of growth is that school is quite you know, it's very structured. Mm-hmm. It's very time intensive. Kids are there a lot. The language input that they're getting is going to be a lot more homogenous. And I think that helps. I think that's one of the things that that really works well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in terms of, of teacher awareness, are there things, I suppose it would probably be similar to perhaps some of the signs we talked about with parents, but because I think I know that one of the examples you gave was saying students hate being called upon in class to kind of talk, but I mean, I, I didn't have any, I, I hated being asked to speak in class. <laughs> I was yeah. <laughs> so are there any other things that maybe teachers can, can look out for? Because either maybe the child hasn't been diagnosed yet or maybe the caregiver's yeah. not flagged it. So is there anything teachers can look out for? So I think uh, early in primary school, then you, it's very similar. So it'll be the kids who, it will be kids who really aren't contributing in the classroom and they might not be so engaged with peers. So they'll mm. often be the kids who are on their own. And often it will go two ways. And there might be interesting gender differences here. But mm-hmm. you might have kids who are really as quiet as they can be so that nobody will notice them. <laughs> notice <laughs> that they're having difficulties. Or you might have the kids who are really acting out. And I think anytime you're sort of worried about those kind of extremes of behavior, it might be worth saying to yourself, hmm, could mm. this be a, a language difficulty? And the other big indicator for schools is kids who are failing to learn how to read. Mm. So people will think that that's a reading problem, but very often there's a language problem that underlies that. So if you have concerns about the child's not reading, they're not learning as we would like them to and their behavior is different think about language 
Perfect. And that's, I, I work with a group called Rattled, Raising Awareness of DLD, mm-hmm. and we've got a YouTube channel, and there's a lot of videos on there that are aimed specifically at teachers. So that might give them some ideas of things to look out for and, and also really helpful strategies about how you can manage DLD in the classroom. Perfect. And uh, I'm glad you said rattled because I, when I was recording your bio, I absolutely butchered the <laughs> I ended up just having to say reason awareness of developmental language disorder (laughs) (laughs) I remember rattled from now on and that's great that you've got a YouTube channel for teachers because I think any accessible resources that teachers can access is always really helpful so go back to the the skills work you and your team have created this really lovely video that I really enjoyed watching the words of for well-being video we'll definitely link to it on our website when we publish the podcast and I really enjoyed that in the several children themselves are talking about their experiences of having DLD which I think is really important and one of the ones that struck me was a a young girl talking about the fact that she didn't know what a greenhouse was she thought it was a, a greenhouse rather than a house made of glass for plants but she was talking about how the, the substitute teacher responded to her in a way that kind of caused her a bit of stress and upset because they couldn't understand how she couldn't get that. So what advice would you give to teachers if they do have children in their classrooms with DLD and something like that happens where a student isn't getting something you think is obvious, but yeah, how best to respond to that? So again, this is a really good example because in that lesson, it's not only a house made of glass, but they're talking about the greenhouse effect, Picked. right? So this is a science lesson. And, you know, just I think it's such a beautiful example because it really gives you an insight into the level of complexity that we all take for granted yep. uh, and that these young people are really struggling with. So in that situation, I mean, I think that was a substitute teacher. Mm -hmm. What we really would like is for kids to be able to have almost like passports where they could kind of go up to somebody, uh, go up to that teacher or the school to have a process whereby everybody knows these are the kids who have DLD. So if they say something like that in class, it's not because they're not paying attention or they're not listening or they're being silly or they're being stupid. It's because they haven't understood. And I think just creating a culture where everybody makes mistakes, sometimes we misunderstand or mishear something and it might seem funny, but you know, it's it's a really important thing that we need to to tackle. And so I think any time a child is is asking a question like that or a young person is asking a question, it has been a massive effort for yeah. them to be brave enough to put their hands up and say, where's the greenhouse? Yeah. And to be able to just say, ah, I see why you've made that connection, mm-hmm. but actually this is what we're talking about. And I'm really glad you asked because I bet there are other people who were also wondering exactly the same thing. So you never want to say, why aren't you listening to me? Or mm-hmm. what a silly thing to say. You always want to say, oh, that's good. That's yeah, a good yeah. question. I'm sure there are other people who who wonder the same thing. So you really want to create a culture where kids can do that because they're saying, I haven't understood and I, I want to understand this. And I think that would make a huge difference. Yeah. Excellent. No, I think that's a really nice way as well, I think, to kind of say, you know, that I'm sure other people have also thought that or other people are also not sure because it kind of helps them kind of not feel alone, I guess. Yep. 
And also, I think, you know, it's hard for a substitute teachers, maybe, but for yeah. teachers generally to get ahead of that and think, ah, greenhouse, that can mean lots of different mm-hmm. things. I better make sure they know what it means in this context. Yeah. Uh, and science is like that. I mean, there are lots of words in science that mean one thing in, in a science lesson context that means something completely different in our everyday conversation. Absolutely. And I think just making teachers more aware of that and being able to say, okay, here are some tricky words that are coming up today. This is what they mean. And Mm -hmm. kind of fronting that so that everybody's on the same page because, you know, in every class there will just be huge variation in the skills that kids have and and their understanding of of the topic. So to be able to front those key concepts before you even start talking Mm -hmm. should hopefully make sure that everybody has a kind of level playing field in in terms of what they need to know for that lesson. Absolutely. And just goes back to you saying as well, I think when people talk about language, they automatically would maybe think English. But actually, yeah, like you say, this was a science class. So it is apparent across all all subjects. And yeah, I think something that all all teachers can be aware of. And that I think is a heart, heartbreaking thing. Uh, the girl in the video says every lesson is like this. I know. <laughs> every lesson is like this. So anything we can can do to kind of make her feel, you know, you're not stupid. And mm-hmm. actually, yes, when in not. school, we're, we're often talking about really tough stuff, you know. Yeah. Yes, As a definitely. parent, sometimes I think, oh, my goodness, I don't even know the answer <laughs> to that. So I think it's just making them feel like everybody's learning. Yeah. And everybody, everybody has different background knowledge and everybody has different strengths and everybody is going to struggle with different things and it's okay yeah it's okay you can ask me and I'm not going to make you feel ridiculous I'm going to make you feel like that is the best question I've heard all day and we yeah. can answer it yeah absolutely yeah no I think that's such a, a great I, I, I think the vi- the video is the whole video was really great I just that that example oh really thanks you know we we made that with young people who were in our study and and my idea for what that video would be like is totally different from what it is yeah. like. And it's so much better because yeah. they told us what to do. So <laughs> it's good. I think that's the best way because I think they're like they're they're the experts as well, you know, so they live through it. So absolutely. And and it's mental health awareness week, so it's really great that that video is still there. I know yeah. people still look at it and uh, we're just delighted that that people can relate to that and get some good information from it. Yeah, love. No, I think it's a it's a really brilliant resource. And I know that you mentioned on the Raising Awareness for Developmental Language Disorders YouTube page, there's also resources um, specifically at teachers. So are there any other good places that parents or teachers can maybe get resources from that you would recommend? I, I think Rattled is a really great website, a good entry point. And then the other charities that I talked about, Speech yes. and Language UK, mm-hmm. uh, has lots of information uh, and they have some programs specifically tailored to schools that, that can be helpful. Your local speech and language therapists, lots of uh, speech and language therapists are, are doing work in schools so they can, they can talk to you about the services that they provide and try and work out what's going to be best for you. The Royal College of Speech and Language Therapists is the kind of governing body for clinicians and they they can put you in contact with local people and and have information on their websites so yeah lots of places you can get information you can always email me if you're stuck for anything else (laughs) 
That's really kind of you, Courtney. I'll um, yeah, we'll, we'll maybe not add your email to the. <laughs> you'll, you'll be inundated, I'm sure. <laughs> but yeah, no, that's fantastic. That oh, and I should also mention one last organization uh, is called NAPLIC. Mm-hmm. And they specifically uh, work to bring clinicians and teachers together and they run an annual conference. They have a newsletter and their web pages are full of things about supporting kids with DLD in the classroom. Brilliant. No, we'll definitely link to all of those because I think the more this podcast will be fantastic, but the more resources teachers and parents can get their hands on, I think the better. Absolutely. Like you say, we're just continuing to raise awareness and direct people to the right places. We're going in the right direction. We are one step <laughs> at a time we're getting there. <laughs> and yeah, just to, to finish up, I, I know we talked about we've talked about a lot of different things and I know you were you've said quite a few times there's still work to do. So what you're you've got no time to rest. <laughs> what <laughs> what exciting projects are you working on right now? Well well um you know getting it funded is difficult. Yeah. The sorts of areas that we are really interested in focusing on going forward I think are these issues around mental health Mm. so really testing this idea that early language interventions might be protective for later mental health but also when kids are in crisis how can they access mental health support that's out there Mm -hmm. we've been doing more work with secondary schools and and young adults now that our kids are getting older and I think there really are no services for mm. adults with DLD. And I, I think this is a travesty and really thinking about how we can support those adults so that they can really participate fully in society. And some of that has been me thinking around things like like health literacy and, mm. and actually how do these young adults find out about stuff that is important for their health, particularly in an age where there's a lot of misinformation and malinformation about. So how do you make choices about healthcare or health options and weigh up all of this information and decide what is relevant and what's not relevant? So I think those are areas that that we want to look at. And I really am interested in, in intervention and thinking more about timing and also how skills go together mm-hmm. you know so how does uh improving language have other impacts on things like reading or on your problem solving ability and vice versa mm-hmm. so i think one of the challenges we have with intervention is we're only ever focusing on one small part of a very complicated developmental system and mm-hmm. maybe there are ways to kind of maximize our intervention efforts if we look at a more connected system brilliant i'm gonna be busy for a while you are gonna be busy for a while but i think we're gonna be here for a while so you can come back at any time and tell us how you're getting on i would love to thank you so much yeah thank you for speaking with me this morning courtney i think this is going to be a, a fantastic resource for parents and teachers so thank you so much for your time it's been my absolute pleasure thank you This Get a Grip podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.